Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Jake Neer. Recently, it's difficult to skim through the day's news headlines without coming across something relating to New York City's Muslim and Middle Eastern communities. Activists within those communities are responding to newly uncovered spying operations by the NYPD. And earlier this month, a number of New Yorkers gathered to protest the presence of Yemeni President Ali Abdullah Saleh in the city for medical treatment, or what he says is why he's here for medical treatment. Dr. John Antelis is a professor of Middle East Studies at Fordham University in the Political Science Department. He's written numerous books and articles on comparative and international politics in the Middle East and North Africa. He's conducted extensive research in those regions and contributed to many well-known publications, including the New York Times. And Linda Sarsour, who joins us on the phone today, is a community activist born and raised in Brooklyn. She works with a number of advocacy groups, including the National Network for Arab American Communities and the Arab American Association of New York. John and Linda will help me dig into the wide array of issues facing New Yorkers who practice Islam and those of Middle Eastern descent. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about the NYPD. I guess uh, just to summarize some of the more recent developments in this story, a CIA agent uh, who was essentially embedded within the NYPD to conduct surveillance on Muslim New Yorkers is now leaving that post in April. An internal investigation in the NYPD found the two agencies formed that partnership in an inappropriate way, but said the operations weren't illegal. Uh, and more recently, documents uncovered by the Associated Press show police officials recommended spying on Shiite mosques based solely on their religion. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg and Commissioner Ray Kelly have said in the past that investigations are triggered only by investigative leads, but the report offers no leads for the spying operation. Uh, Linda, let, let's start with you. As a Muslim New Yorker, uh, what was your first reaction to these reports about the NYPD uh, surveillance operations? So the revelations that came out in the end of August, uh, for us as a community, were not really revelations. They were more uh, confirmations for things that we've been talking about for the past 10 years. Um, so that, for us, uh, really just made our concerns a lot more valid. Um, and beyond the CIA-NYPD uh, relationship, I mean, the documents that are being released uh, by the NYPD clearly show that we are being religiously and ethnically profiled uh, by the NYPD, which according to their charter is illegal. So it's very concerning for us as a community to know that the pe very people that are supposed to protect us, the people that are supposed to serve all New, Yorker New Yorkers, are actually um, targeting and making our community feel unsafe. And, and how does that affect your personal relationship with the city of New York? I know you were born and raised here in the city. You know, how does that affect, uh, again, your relationship with the city? It obviously um, hinders our relationship with, with the New York Police Department specifically, and of course with government agencies, particularly with elected officials like Mayor Bloomberg, who continuously uh, supports Commissioner Kelly, although he knows that he has lied uh, on the public record more than once to, uh, to our community. And what that does is, it, you know, with the, with the police department, um, it's about, it should be about community policing. It's about partnership with communities so you can find the bad guys. And if the communities feel like you're criminalizing them all and you think they're all criminals, or can be potential criminals or terrorists, then the community is not going to want to reach out to law enforcement in times of need. And that really scares me, and I'm sure it scares other New Yorkers. So uh, I think that the city has uh, failed to come back to the community and say, listen, okay, 
you know, what can we do to make this better? How can we, you know, partner? How can we make sure that we keep New York City safe from every, from, from all types of, uh, of evil and all types of crime? And until, until now, um, after this, this recent, you know, revelations from the uh, AP, we really haven't had a, a response or uh, an appropriate response from the city of New York or from the New York Police Department. So, John, uh, you know, what is your take on the NYPD's post-9-11 actions uh, and how they're handling the situation now? Well, it's not surprising, uh, given the level of ignorance that exists regarding the overall American understanding of the Islamic world and the Islamic communities in the United States. So this is part and parcel, I think, of a, of a much larger gap that exists in sort of the information and knowledge base of, of Americans which I'd like to think is slowly being filled if you think about universities and the classes that are being offered on the subject, but it still has a long way to go, not only in in the case of New York City, but it goes all the way up to the highest levels of government at the national level as well. So there is a a huge informational, perceptional gap that, that exists, that has existed for a long time, and it's going to take a while before that's filled so that incidents like this don't occur. Now, to both of you, I'll, I'll field this question to both of you. Uh, what is your reaction to those who say some of the NYPD's tactics must be working on some level? Police have stopped some terror plots, including the somewhat recent example of the men who wanted to kill the creators of South Park for showing an image of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, Linda, we'll start with you. What's your reaction to that? I think it's a, it's a bogus argument, I'll be honest with you, because the, uh, many of the foiled plots or what the you know, NYPD claims as their uh, accomplishments of foiled plots have actually been foiled by, uh, or, uh, by or assisted by citizens of New York. So, for example, the uh, Times Square bomber um, who, who uh, Faisal Khan, I mean, it was a Senegalese Muslim street vendor who, who put in the first call to 911 when he saw smoke coming out of the back of the car. And the, another recent case, uh, Jose Pimentel, a Dominican convert to Islam, uh, when he was, uh, you know, arrested, you know, a day after we had a rally uh, against the NYPD, uh, very coincidental, uh, the FBI actually on the record said, oh, oh, we didn't get involved in that case because the NYPD informant was too involved in the case. Now, if you look at some of the recent cases, and there's a case, uh, you know, Siraj Mateen, uh, which is a young Pakistani boy, the what they call the Herald Square bomber, I mean, these are are all, uh, you know, incidents where there were informants involved. And many, many, most often the informant has a lot, of, a, a big role that he plays. And that's not really the, what the informant should be doing. Also the Newberg Four. I mean, this informant bought them the plastic bombs and they went and put the bombs under a car in front of a synagogue. Now, where, if, if this informant wasn't able to bring those bombs or, or purchase those fake bombs for them, would they really have had the resources to do that? Also, if you look at a lot of the foiled plots um, in New York City, with, whether it's uh, the Newburgh Four or Ahmed Farhani or, or uh, Siraj Mateen, these are all young people, young men who are mentally challenged. Um, uh, Siraj Mateen has an IQ of 75. Ahmed Farhani has been institutionalized 20 times, and 10 of those times have been by the NYPD themselves where they watched him be straightjacketed. So, so I really, you know... You know, caution people from saying, "Wow, NYPD are our heroes." They're going around foiling plots when people are not looking at the details of these cases. Who's being affected? So, for us, many of these cases for us are what we perceive as entrapment cases, just to make sure that the NYPD continues to get federal funding to fight terrorism. When in fact, there might not be that much of a threat. You know, if you look also at the a recent New York Times article that talks about uh, research that came out that. 
actually radical Islam or the threat of radical Islam is actually a minuscule threat in this country. We're kind of like making more of a big deal out of it than it really is. So I don't know. I'd be very cautious to take that argument on that face value. So, John, what is your take on uh, the effectiveness of current tactics and what do you think needs to happen? Well, I mean, a lot of it is just pure luck. Uh, and, and obviously, 9-11 was bad luck. And then the more recent examples in New York was good luck. Uh, and it's, it's easy enough to take credit uh, when there's no hard evidence to show that, in fact, that whatever your policies that you were pursuing were, were the reasons why you, why you were able to stop these, these incidents. But listen, I mean, the, the whole phenomenon of terrorism is something that is way beyond the capacity of any kind of rational, organizational, systematic effort that can be pursued in ways that, that people believe that it can be pursued. And the examples of some of these individuals and, 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 their, and the, the diversity of individuals and their backgrounds uh, and why they end up pursuing these kinds of act activities are, are such that it, it's virtually impossible to provide a broad, systematic, organizational framework by which you can guarantee that you'll so, sort of catch the terrorists. Uh, more importantly is, is, is the, the, the larger environment within which relations between different peoples and religions takes place that creates, I think, the, uh, the, the, the conditions that would inhibit and limit the possibility of, of so-called terrorist actions. You'll never be able to stop any single individual of whatever nationality, of whatever religious persuasion, if he or she wants to commit a suicide act, a terrorist act. So that, that's the reality. The, the more important thing is not to create a hostile environment in a society in which people begin to feel suspicious about each other and begin to look over their shoulders and begin to have doubts about their neighbors and so on. And this, this is, I think, is, is the more important consequence of these actions. Of course, there's also the backlash uh, recently over the department showing the film The Third Jihad uh, to many of its officers, a film that Commissioner Kelly actually appeared in. Many critics have called The Third Jihad overtly anti-Muslim and discriminatory. Uh, the commissioner has since denounced the film, and he says it was shown to officers by mistake. Now, Linda, uh, what do you think, or how do you think Muslim New Yorkers are responding to Commissioner Kelly's apology and explanation of the events surrounding this video? Interestingly enough, uh, Commissioner Kelly is apologizing, and we never asked him for an apology. Um, and, and although he gave it to us, we think it's absolutely unacceptable. And when you talk about showing a film um, as a mistake, you know, you show it to like 20 guys and it's a mistake. Um, you show it twice and we'll say, okay, then you start showing it to 1,500 officers and it's not a mistake anymore. And what really concerned our community is we talk about the NYPD being, if it was an army, it'd be the seventh largest in the world. And also, we're supposed to have the best intelligence. I mean, I mean, the CIA works with us. I mean, the NYPD is supposed to have the best intelligence department in the world, right? So the fact that they didn't do their due diligence and their research into the Clarion Fund, who made that film, and I think if they would have done that, they would have probably not agreed to working with the Clarion Fund um, uh, or get interviewed for this film, The Third Jihad. So the fact that there's no due diligence, I'm kind of afraid for myself, thinking that if, I mean, you can go on Google, for God's sakes, and find out who the Clarion Fund, who funds them, and what types of movies ha or documentaries or what I call mockumentaries that they put out in the past. I'll field this question to both of you. We'll start with John. Uh, what do you think the city can do to mend any damages this may have caused with the Muslim community? Well, I think uh, it, it goes beyond a single community. I mean, it, it has to do with uh, developing and maintaining a relationship of trust 
that is central to a police force. Uh, and to be honest with you, as long as you pay uh, police officers the, the measly salary they get, uh, you know, you're not going to attract the best, the smartest, and the best that you need to get. I mean, this you need to professionalize this police force that can respond in a city that's in. The, this is one of the most sophisticated cosmopolitan cities in the world, and you can't be policed by individuals who, you know, I don't know how qualified they are, and then their qualifications are a function of how much they're being paid. Uh, so then it's not surprising that you would see whether it's the Muslim community in this instance, the black community in another instance, the Hispanic community in a third, uh, the, the targets will, will just keep changing because the overall environment is the same. So, you know, uh, at the end of the day, is I think it, it comes down to professionalizing the, the force, making certain that they get, they, they get paid uh, t- for, the, for the work that they do, uh, and in so doing, educate them, uh, as we have to educate all Americans about the need to be inc- inc- increasingly uh, sensitive to the diversity of a city like New York. Uh, so, Linda, you know, in your perspective as a Muslim New Yorker, uh, what can the city and the NYPD do to mend any damages that this could have caused? Well, first I want to make a point that the Muslim American community, I mean, we're a very pro-law enforcement community, and we're just anti-police misconduct. So there are a lot of good cops out on the streets. I mean, in our area in southwest Brooklyn, the 68th Precinct is really a good precinct. They work very closely with us. They make sure that we get all the things that we need during our, you know, large community events and very supportive of some of the cases that we've had, you know, particularly around domestic violence, et cetera. So the, it's not the whole entire police department that, that needs to go or has issues. It's just a couple of bad apples. And unfortunately, the baddest of the apples happen to be in the leadership, and that's why we want the leadership to go. But what can the NYPD do? First of all, they need to agree to an investigation. If you're telling me you're not doing something wrong to our communities of color, then then prove it to us. Let there be an independent investigation, uh, release that report publicly to the communities, and if there is no wrongdoing, I'm willing to go right back into my office and find something else to hate about. The other thing that they need to do is they need to, that somebody in the city needs to tell me and my community that there's some sort of oversight. Right now, I still haven't gotten the answer. Who's the boss? Who watches the NYPD while they're watching our communities? Some people say it's, it's somebody, that's, you know, some city council committee. Some of the people say it's Mayor Bloomberg. I mean, I don't understand what what that means. So one of the things that we're hoping to, to work on the next couple of months is, is to work with some of the legal organizations that put out some potential opportunities for oversight. So maybe that's, maybe that's in the form of an inspector general that's, uh, you know, independent of the NYPD. John, what do you what is what are your thoughts on the system in government of accountability when it comes to these kinds of operations? Well, you know, uh, the difficulty in in, in resolving uh, I mean, these the issues of investigation makes perfect sense. Obviously, uh, I'm not certain that this would necessarily take care of the problem because most likely it will occur again and again. Um, because, it, as I said earlier, it, it, it has to do with education, knowledge, and informing uh, the public. And, and the, the officials uh, who themselves feel that they are above learning uh, and understanding the complexities of, of these issues. So, yes, investigations uh, and accountability, but ultimately something more profound has to happen, and I'm not sure that anyone is prepared at this point in time to take that next step. And that next step really involves a kind of a, uh, a, a pedagogical, it's a pedagogical p- problem 
of of informing you, officials serving as as teachers about our city and our communities and how how the respect that's necessary i mean th- this is where you begin so that these kinds of incidents the, these particular incidents end up being the focus of attention, the incidents themselves, rather than the, the broader context within which they take place. And I'm not sure that at the, at the level that we're dealing with here that they're prepared to undertake this kind of more fundamental structural uh, reformation of the way in which they even approach th- these issues or the people themselves. Uh, this is a relatively new phenomenon for them. I mean, you know, since September 11th, they've had to do a lot of catching up on, you know, what is a Muslim? Uh, who are they? What do they believe in? Uh, uh, how does it relate to Muslims all over the world? Uh, how different are they? Uh, what nationalities are they? I mean, these kind of, nobody's asking these kinds of questions. No, no one's making an effort to get at an understanding of that. That's the foundation from which you work, and then you work up so that you make it more and more difficult to have these kinds of incidents occurring as, as they often do. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Jake Neer, discussing recent events affecting Muslim and Middle Eastern New Yorkers with Fordham Professor of Middle East Politics John Antelis and community activist Linda Sarsour. We contacted the NYPD to give them a chance to respond to some of the criticisms expressed by Dr. Antelis and Ms. Sarsour during our conversation, but the NYPD has not responded to our request for comment. I'd also like to clarify something Linda said when she was talking about possible police entrapment. She mentioned a group dubbed the Newberg Four. It's important to note that the Newberg Four case was an FBI case and that the NYPD was not involved in the actions Linda mentioned in that instance. Now, let's talk a little bit about the uh, recent visit from the president of Yemen. Uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh came to New York recently, supposedly for medical treatment. A recent report by CBS says he was responsible for killing at least 270 civilians during last year's Arab Spring uprising. Uh, it hinted that the, the total could actually be much higher. Uh, a number of New Yorkers, especially those with direct ties to Yemen, uh, gathered to protest his presence in the city and in the country. Uh, John, what's your take on Washington's decision to give Saleh diplomatic immunity and come to New York for an extended period of time? Well, this has been a difficult thing for American foreign policy across the board, whether it's Mubarak, whether it's Ben Ali, uh, whether it's even Assad uh, and Saleh, you know, has been, believe it or not, cooperating with the United States in fighting against al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula uh, as a whole. But uh, at the end of the day, these have been long-time dictators that we have stuck with and we have paid the price for it. Uh, My understanding is the expectation is that by uh, having him here in the U.S., we can have, I, I would hope, some influence on making certain that he doesn't go back, and if he does go back, he sure doesn't go back as president, that he secedes power and allows Yemenites to decide their political fate for themselves as the Egyptians, as the Tunisians, as hopefully the Syrians one day will as well, and the Libyans, of course. 
And he's actually already transferred much of his power to his vice president, correct? Uh, technically, yes. Oh, okay. So, but your your view is that he still has the opportunity to maintain that. Well, power. absolutely. I mean, if you've been following his uh, in the last year, I mean, he's gone back and forth, uh, promising he's going to step down, then he comes back, uh, promising that once he was in Saudi Arabia, they wouldn't come back. He did come back. Uh, this is someone that you can't trust at this point. I'm, I'm just hoping that, uh, being on American soil, that there's some attempt to influence his final decision in this instance. Uh, it's better It's better for Yemenites, and it's, it'll be better for the United States. Linda, uh, wh- what do you think of Saleh's presence in New York City, and how does that affect uh, mid- the Middle Eastern community here? I mean, a, a country like ours, that's, that's foundation stand on democracy um, and freedom and, and, you know, all the, you know, wonderful things that people come to America for. And then what we do is we go and then we are so hospitable to a dictator who has been a dictator for decades now, and his people want him out. Um, and that kind of th- sends a message, regardless of whether we want to send a message or not, that you're kind of like saying, slap in the face of the revolutionaries. And while, yes, uh, you know, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh has said, you know, I've already given some power away, and like, you know, I'm not going to be the president anymore. I mean, I don't really believe him until I see it for myself. But also, when he was here in New York, and, the, and we went and protest uh, in front of his hotel, he came out and mocked the people that were there. He was like, blowing them kisses, and he was like, saying hello to them. I mean, that's not a man that I think is going down on the right path. And I think that as, as, a, as, the, as the United States, we need to really not care about what dictators think of us, but really think about what the people on the ground think of us and, and make sure that public opinion within the Arab and Muslim world is more positive towards us. And we shouldn't continue to cater to the dictator because that one man will fall and then we'll have to figure out to deal with the millions of people that live in those countries. And I think that the United States is starting to figure that out a little bit. Um, as the time goes by, but I think with Ali Abdullah Saleh, I said I think it was a really big mistake that the uh, United States government allowed him to come in to, to get tr- medical treatment. Uh, John, do you have anything else that you want to add to that? By the way, well, no, I, I would just uh, I mean I, c- I can understand that that uh, that view. I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, my my sense is that uh, we're doing it for the reasons that uh, assist the Yemenite people. That is that we want democracy to be there. We, we want to make sure that he's he, he stops being a troublemaker. Uh, one way, hopefully, and maybe I'm just being an optimistic in, in, in determining why they decided to let him back. Uh, not because they're supporting him by any means, but by the fact that maybe they can have some control over him so that he doesn't go back and doesn't create the kinds of problems he's created over these, these decades. Uh, I mean, it doesn't look good from a PR point of view, of course, but I, I'd like to think that uh, we had some ulterior motive that is consistent with the p- positions we've been taking uh, with the fall of Mubarak, with the fall of Gaddafi, with the fall of Ben Ali, mm-hmm. uh, this would be consistent with with that. Uh, I, you know, if Ben Ali had been sick, uh, w- uh, and his choice was you know staying in in Tunisia or coming to the U.S. when it was clear that the Tunisian people you know wanted him out, we probably would have l- had him come and try to persuade him that you know you want to stay here, just don't go back to Tunisia. Uh, maybe th- I, I'm hoping that they're saying the same thing to Saleh. Again, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the broader um, process of uprisings happening still in the Middle East. Um, The the most news lately, of course, has been coming out of Syria, uh, where the number of civilian casualties is estimated at over 8,000 at at the last time I checked, at least. The U.S. recently pulled its ambassador to Syria, and the U.N. is trying to figure out a way to calm the situation. Uh, John, uh, what do you think are the possible outcomes for Syria in the uprising there at this point? Well, the situation has gotten infinitely worse uh, from a year ago when it looked like Syria would follow on the path of, of Tunisia and, and, and Egypt. 
But Syria is a complex country, highly divided country with uh, many religions and ethnic identities. Um, and uh, Assad is in, in the Alawite sect that he represents and the military that is dominated by the Alawites uh, apparently is willing to fight to the end. And this is a bloody, bloody affair. And, of course, he's got support in Lebanon among the Shiites, especially Hezbollah. He's got support on the Iranian side, uh, the Alawites being an offshoot of Shiism. Uh, there's a certain amount of, uh, of religious uh, uh, connection, but I think it has much more to do with politics and power than it has to do with religion. And, uh, and that f the Assad family has been in power for, for, for you know, decades, uh, and they're simply unwilling to give up that power. And if it continues along this path, however, you could end up having a vicious civil war with the enormous consequences to the Syrian people. And, and the region as a whole, and it includes Lebanon in particular, but also Iraq and, and Turkey for that matter. Do you think that the U.S. at this point has a role in Syria? What should that role be? Well, it's been unable to apply any of the formula that it, that it used in the cases of Tunisia, for example, where it was almost ahead of the curve on that one. In the case of Egypt, where it was behind the curve, but finally had to accept the consequences. In the case of Libya, where it's, it was a multilateral uh, UN-sponsored or NATO-sponsored effort, uh, this doesn't fit any of these categories, and our policy has reflected that as much. I mean, we, we make the comments, of course, but and we, we want... We want the Arab League to take the initiative in this instance, and it is. I must say the Arab League, which is an organization that's existed since 1945, has been pretty inept and impotent for, for all these years, is now showing a certain amount of political uh, muscle that has never shown before, and we're very much supporting that effort, and I, I think that's the way to go at this point. Linda, uh, you know, this doesn't necessarily have to be limited just to Syria, but how do these events overseas affect the lives of Muslims and uh, Middle Easterners here in New York? particularly in the Arab community, many of these communities that live in the United States are, um, you know, connected. They have their families, their brothers, their sisters, their cousins. I mean, people are watching people being massacred and their heads cut off. I mean, it's a very uh, traumatizing experience for people who are living in the United States and, and thinking about their family members or not being able to call their family members. Um, and I think for Syria, I mean, one of the reasons why it is more complicated is because, you know, we've never ha we haven't for a very long time had any good relationships with Syria. I mean, they've been sanctioned by the U.S. and it's kind of a different uh, relationship than we had, for example, with Mubarak, who was like our best friend, so we were kind of like, I don't know what to do, because he was kind of our best friend, and now, you know, his people don't want him, but with Syria, it's kind of a little different. What I do know is if you came into the streets and talked to the Syrian people, particularly those in the United States and the activists that were connected, connected to uh, in Syria, they definitely don't want uh, American intervention, they don't want NATO intervention. And I think people are watching and saying, wow, you know, look at all these, you know, innocent people being killed. And absolutely, I mean, for me, one child is, is, is more than enough uh, for, for, for me to be, uh, you know, to, to be killed. But I think that in, with any revolution we've had, even within our own country in the United States, I mean, sometimes people have to die in a revolution. And if people don't die and people are not detained and arrested, and then it's not really a revolution. So I think the Syrian people are seeing this for them as just part of the process to freedom. And they don't want anyone to intervene. They want to come out of this and say, we, the Syrian people, freed our country, not with the help of NATO or with the help of the U.S. government. And worrying that if NATO came in, that when would they leave, which we've seen the aftermath of that. And obviously, um, 
you know, in other uh, countries where we've had intervention. So uh, while, it's, while it's such a traumatizing experience to watch what's happening in Syria particularly, I really think that the people there, you know, know what they're getting into. They want to free their country. Um, and if someone like Assad continues to say how much he loves Syria, if he really did love Syria, he'd end the misery that's happening right now. And he'd step down. I mean, he has the money. He has the opportunity. And he should do that as a, as a man who, quote-unquote, loves his country. So I'm a little hurt by Syria, but I, I have a lot of hope in the people, in the Syrian people, they are known um, in the Arab world as the Abtal. They are the, the, the brave ones. Um, so I'm, I'm very optimistic that while we're seeing a lot of blood on the streets, we're going to see some freedom uh, come very soon to Syria. Uh, you know, there's been not a small amount of criticism of local and uh, national uh, public officials uh, in this conversation. Uh, you know, something that I just wanted to, to end on here, and this is, is to Linda, what... What I wanted to know is on the more positive side of things, uh, what is what do you think is the best thing about being a Muslim of Middle Eastern descent in New York City? Well, New York City is the best place to be that because in New York City, uh, you could be anyone from anywhere. Um, and what's 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 beautiful about New York City is also you can find places to live around people who are just like you. So I live in Southwest Brooklyn and Bay Ridge, and I can walk on the streets of Fifth Avenue and I see people from Lebanon and from and from uh, Egypt and from Yemen and from Palestine. I can my family can shop and we can eat the same foods that we ate when we were across the world. I mean, I was born here, but when I visit the Middle East. So I think New York is the best place to be there. I'm, I, I'm seen as interesting. Um, obviously, there are some people who don't think I'm quite interesting. They think, uh, you know, there are some very small minority of New Yorkers who are not very friendly to Muslims or Arabs. But in general, New Yorkers are, and they're always open to new things. Um, and I, I love being from New York. I wouldn't want to be from anywhere else, and I'd never live anywhere else. So it's a very uh, amazing experience to live in a city as, as big and as diverse as New York City. Linda, you think you'll uh, run for mayor? <laughs> Mayor, I, I'd probably do mayor, yeah. Now All I'm going right. to start city council. I'm going to start, you know, I'm gonna, I don't want to jump up too high now. I'm going to take right. it step by step. Great, excellent. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Linda and John, I, I want to thank you guys so much for taking some time today to, to talk to me, and thank it's been a great that. conversation. I, I hope uh, you enjoyed it as well. Thank yes, you so much. Thank Pleasure. You. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Jake Neer. Yeah.